You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. Just a reminder, this will be my last scheduled episode in August. I'm taking a bit of a vacation, and the show will resume weekly broadcasting in the first week of September. If you're a regular listener to the show, you will undoubtedly know that I enjoy making episodes on architecture and design. I enjoy talking about how the built world influences us, and how we've shaped it in turn. This will not be one of those episodes. This week I'm not bringing you an episode about architecture, but rather a single architect who used his power and fame to repeatedly sexually assault a 15-year-old girl, eventually leading to his very public murder at the hands of an obsessive and unhinged millionaire. This is not an episode for the faint of heart. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 41, The Velvet Swing. Born on November 9th, 1853, Stanford White was New York's architectural superstar. He was designer to the rich and powerful, a partner at the legendary architecture firm McKin, Mead, and White. It was during his time in this role that he had a significant hand in the construction and design of such structures as the Washington Square Arch, Pennsylvania Station, and the second iteration of Madison Square Garden. Like his architectural contemporary, Philadelphia-based Horace Trumbauer, White's firm was contracted to design homes for the city's fabulously wealthy. A large number of these buildings have been demolished, as is architectural progression in American cities. But their construction not only made White extremely wealthy in his own right, but it also gave him a large amount of name recognition, as well as social clout among New York City's upper class. White married in 1884, but this did not end his ruthless pursuit of other women. In fact, that very same year, in Tarentum, Pennsylvania, a child was born to Winfield Scott Nesbitt and Evelyn Florence. In her early years, she would go mainly by Florence Evelyn, but today is far better known as Evelyn Nesbitt. She was described by her father as a self-confident and curious young woman, an intellectual who loved to read, dance, and sing. After the unexpected death of her father in 1894, the Nesbitt family was destitute. Eventually, Florence, Evelyn, and Howard, her younger brother, all relocated to Philadelphia, where they became employees of the massive Wanamaker's department store. It was here that young Evelyn began working as a model on the side, first only for female artists, and then, as word of her charm and beauty spread, for illustrators, painters, and sculptors throughout the city. In 1900, the Nesbitts once again relocated, this time to New York. 
The art contact that Evelyn had made in Philadelphia provided her with letters of reference meant for reputable artists in their new home. Eventually, after realizing that Evelyn would not surrender her modeling career, her mother, who had been relatively poorly managing the family since the death of Winfield Scott Nesbitt, finally put the recommendations to good use. As a result, her popularity continued to grow, with her likeness appearing in countless ads and on the covers of magazines such as Puck, Cosmopolitan, and Ladies Home Journal. She was the model for the most famous of Charles Dana Gibson's Gibson Girls, appearing in a 1903 illustration titled Woman, The Eternal Question. But modeling was proving to be a somewhat unenjoyable career path. Sitting completely still in complex poses for hours on end was quickly growing old, and so Evelyn convinced her mother to let her audition for the stage, eventually landing a role in the incredibly popular musical comedy Floridora in 1901. It was here that one of the members of the cast would introduce her to Stanford White. At the time, he was 46, had a wife and a son. Evelyn Nesbitt was 15. Soon after their introduction, White began to methodically exert more and more control over Nesbitt's life. It began simply enough, with a dinner invitation for her and her castmate to his opulent multi-story apartment on West 24th Street. After a meal furnished by the famed New York restaurant Delmonico's, White led the two upstairs and showed them a large forest green room. From the ceiling hung a swing of red velvet, with ropes covered in ivy. On that day, White did not act on his malicious intentions. He had a much longer game to play. He became an influential force in the Nesbitt family, and Evelyn's mother welcomed him as their benefactor. He arranged for the youngest Nesbitt child, Howard, to gain admittance to an exclusive Philadelphia military academy, and most notably, he rehoused the entire family in an expansive suite at the Wellington Hotel on 7th Avenue. He had decorated it himself. The color scheme of the rooms meant to remind Evelyn of his own apartment, and most importantly, the dark green room with the velvet swing. Mrs. Nesbitt saw the older man's obsession with her daughter as purely paternal, and so when she needed to take a brief trip back to Pittsburgh, saw no issue when White promised to soothe her anxieties about having a young daughter alone in New York by watching over her himself. Evelyn Nesbitt was being sent straight into the lion's den. Only a few nights after her mother had left on her trip, Nesbitt joined White for a dinner at his apartment. After plying her with champagne, he took her on a tour of the home that ended in a room completely covered with mirrors, home to only a single sofa. That was the last memory Evelyn Nesbitt had. Stanford White had drugged her, and while she was unconscious, he raped her. She woke up the next morning, naked and covered in blood. She was 15 years old. Despite what White had done to her, the two maintained a sexual relationship 
for a number of months while White solidified his grip over the rest of her life. He exerted a great amount of influence over Mrs. Nesbitt, and conspired with her to send Evelyn off to a boarding school to prevent her from having a relationship with a young John Barrymore, who would later go on to become a prolific film star. At some point, their relationship ended, but Stanford White would not go away so easily. This, however, is only half of the story. Next, we must talk about Harry Kendall Thaw. Harry Thaw was the son of Pittsburgh coal magnate William Thaw, who had, since an early age, struggled with issues of mental health relating to manipulative sociopathy and general instability. Harry Thaw hated Stanford White. He hated him both because he thought that he was intentionally freezing him out of New York social circles, which he was not, and because he saw White as a womanizer who preyed on young girls, which he was. Harry Thaw demonstrated an overwhelming obsession with both Stanford White and Evelyn Nesbitt, though he initially did not know of any relationship between the two. Over the course of a single year, he saw Nesbitt perform in the same show over 40 times, and eventually, through a third party and under a pseudonym, he began to shower her with gifts in preparation to meet her in person. When Evelyn agreed to an in-person meeting and a non-romantic relationship was established, Stanford White, the man who controlled her life with near totality, warned her of his dangerous nature, which he himself gleaned through Thaw's attempt to infiltrate New York social clubs. These warnings, lacking in sufficient detail to warrant action, were ignored. It was a while later, when Evelyn was hospitalized for an appendectomy, that Thaw made his calculated move. He was the heir to a $40 million fortune, and so could spend with impunity. He convinced Evelyn's mother that a trip through Europe would do wonders for her health, and that to guarantee that everything was above board, she could accompany them. Evelyn's mother consented to the trip. Thaw then organized the travel itinerary to be as busy and relentless as possible, both to force Mrs. Nesbitt to return to the United States and to further exhaust the frail Evelyn, lowering her mental ability to resist. In London, Florence Nesbitt returned for America, while Harry and Evelyn continued on to Paris. In Paris is where it really began. Thaw asked Evelyn, whom she had only known for a relatively short time, to marry him. Evelyn longed for a life of financial stability, but also knew that Harry Thaw had an unhinged obsession with female chastity. No matter what her response was to be, she had to tell him about Stanford White. What followed was a supposedly hours-long interrogation, where an unstable and unhinged Thaw extracted every possible detail from a hysterical Evelyn. After this, the travel itinerary changed. Now they were scheduled to visit a string of sites relevant to martyrdom and virginity. In a visit to Doremi, the birthplace of Joan of Arc, 
Thaw wrote a telling entry in the guest book. She would not have been a virgin if Stanford White had been around. The last stop on their European voyage was Schloss Katzenstein in Tyrol. It was here that Thaw locked Evelyn in her room and over a two-week period repeatedly beat and sexually assaulted her. On April 4th, 1905, they were married. Thaw selected the dress. Soon after, things came to a boiling point. On June 25, 1906, Thaw and Nesbitt were bound to sail for Europe on another vacation, but first had a brief stay in New York. That night, Thaw, Nesbitt, and two of Thaw's friends went to see the premiere of Mademoiselle Champagne at the Roof Theater of Madison Square Garden, a building White's firm had designed. At 11 p.m. during the show's finale, a number by the name of I Could Love a Million Girls, Stanford White entered the theater and sat at his usual table. After attempting multiple times to walk over to the table and turning back, Thaw drew a pistol and shot White three times at point-blank range, tearing off a portion of his face and coating him in black powder. He was killed instantly. He raised the gun above his head and exclaimed to the crowd, I did it because he ruined my wife. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then abandoned her. The audience thought it was all part of the show. He walked to the elevator and left, telling Evelyn, It's all right. I probably saved your life. Thaw was charged with first-degree murder but was completely unconcerned with the results of his upcoming trial, convinced that the public would vindicate him for ridding the world of Stanford White. On April 11th, a week after the shooting, Thomas Edison released a film based around the events called Rooftop Murder. This would be the start of what was then referred to as the trial of the century. Thaw ended up being tried twice, the first time, the jury could not reach a decision. The second time, he was found not guilty on charges of temporary insanity and was sentenced to life at the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. In July 1913, he escaped to Canada, was extradited in 1914, and in 1915, a jury found him to be no longer insane. He was set free and ultimately died on February 22, 1947, at the age of 76. Out of his fortune, worth an inflation-adjusted $11 million, he left the woman he tortured for so many years, a single percent of it. Evelyn Nesbitt would end up writing two books about her life, 1914's the Story of My Life and 1934's Prodigal Days. In the 1940s, she moved to Los Angeles, quietly teaching ceramics and sculpture at the Grant Beach School of Arts and Crafts. In 1955, she served as an advisor on the Joan Collins movie The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, 
which ultimately proved to be a highly fictionalized retelling of her life. Evelyn Nesbitt died on January 17, 1967, in Santa Monica, California. She was 82. She had one son, Russell William Thaw. He died in 1984. Thanks to the ceaseless media attention, she was never quite able to live a normal life ever again. Nobody let her move past the awful things that were done to her as an innocent young girl. And it is the ultimate injustice. Even this episode stands to prove it, that Evelyn Nesbitt, by all accounts a vibrant, intelligent, curious, good person, will continue to be remembered not for those things that she accomplished, but for those things that were done to her at the hands of monsters. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.